From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugas, and this is The Explainer. If we really want to move quickly, we should have just a separate statute that is like, this is how we're tackling climate change. You could call it like the you know, Paris Agreement Implementation Act or the climate change law, the national climate change policy. And you would have in there a bunch of different things that would include fossil fuel plants. But it would also kind of include some of the other things we could do, like issues with agriculture and land use planning and, and you know, trade. There's a lot of big picture stuff that we could do and we wouldn't have to deal with this continual debate about an older statute about trying to squeeze climate change into it. Welcome to season eight of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. The Environmental Protection Agency has flip-flopped on carbon emissions regulations from coal-fired power plants over the last three administrations. Environmental law expert Jessica Owley untangles the impact. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Morning, Jessica. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. So the history of the EPA's regulations of carbon emissions has a really complicated history. Clean power plan, affordable clean power rule, Massachusetts versus the EPA, Michigan versus the EPA. Could you just give us the clearest version of how we got where we are today? Well, I'll do my best, but you're right. It's very complicated and it is a journey that many people struggle to understand, including probably the Supreme Court and even maybe the EPA. You have to start with the fact that we don't have a climate change law. There's no national law of like how we're going to tackle climate change. So instead, we look to other statutes to try and make progress on our problems with climate change. And the most obvious is the Clean Air Act. So what does the Clean Air Act do? It regulates emissions of air pollutants from stationary and mobile sources, stationary like a power plant, mobile like, you know, cars and airplanes. But it only regulates air pollutants. So the first question that we had to answer is whether greenhouse gases are air pollutants. And you can see um, the, the struggle here, perhaps, which is that when we just breathe in you know, carbon dioxide, it's not hurting us in the way that if we just kind of breathe in lead, it hurts us. So there was a little tension in the very beginning of whether we should even con- consider it to be an air pollutant. That's what's answered in Massachusetts versus EPA. And that's in 2007, the Supreme Court said, yes, greenhouse gases do qualify as an air pollutant because the statute just says chemical substances admitted into the ambient air. So we have that first yes statement in 2007. Fortunately, there's several more steps to take before we can actually regulate greenhouse gases. The next is that if we find that air pollutants endanger the public health or welfare, that triggers a bunch of requirements under the Clean Air Act. So that was the next question we had to ask. So we know they're air pollutants, but do they actually endanger public health and welfare? And 2009, EPA said, yes, right? If we look at kind of the broader idea of not just us breathing them in, but like the impacts they're going to have on public health through all of the impacts of climate change, this definitely endangers us. Um, So then what does that mean? Well, that endangerment finding, if if the EPA finds that greenhouse gases endanger public health and welfare, it should trigger actually 
all of these different things under the statute. It should trigger regulation of cars, regulation of power plants. But EPA uh, sensibly perhaps decided to like uh, go step by step based on where kind of uh, plaintiffs and, and activists were pushing them. So they first tackled the mobile sources and, and that's been clear. So EPA since 2009 has been regulating emission standards for new vehicles that, to minimize greenhouse gases. The next step, however, is to tackle those those fossil fuel power plants, particularly coal-fired power plants, which are some of our biggest contributors here in the United States and, and worldwide. So can we do that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. right? The Clean Air Act suggests has that same standard of if it endangers the public health and welfare, we should also regulate all these stationary sources through many different pieces that we don't need to deal with. And EPA tried to make rules about that. They tried to, to put this in. But the thing is that the thresholds meant of, of, of what you regulate, which is that any sources that emit 100 tons of pollutants have to be regulated. Well, that's one thing when it's lead, because it's pretty high, hard to reach that threshold. But if it's carbon dioxide, that's like so many things. So EPA tried to make these rules to try and figure out how it was going to work. They all get challenged in the Supreme Court, kind of from both sides. Environmentalists saying, you know, you're not regulating enough. And the regulated industries in some states saying you're regulating us too much. In 2014, we finally get an answer on that, which is a, uh, a very constrained view of the world, which is that, okay, we're not going to regulate. The Supreme Court says you can't just regulate anything out there that emits greenhouse gases. That's not really what the Clean Air Act is about. The Clean Air Act was about kind of reducing the pollution and stopping all the asthma. So instead, what we're going to say is you can regulate it for what they called anyway sources. So all those facilities out there that are already getting a permit because they're putting out other nasty stuff in the air, we can add greenhouse gases on the lines to their permit. So that's what we get in 2014. And so we still have some mechanics of how we're going to do that and what else next steps might take are uncertain. So Obama comes out with the Clean Power Plan. 2015, Obama administration announces the Clean Power Plan. It's going to do all these things to kind of change carbon standards uh, for coal-fired power plants. It's really this really ambitious goal nationwide, um, complicated it's immediately challenged by the fossil fuel industry companies and some states, and it is uh, put on hold by the courts. The courts kind of put it on hold while they're trying to figure it out. Trump administration comes in and they officially repeal the clean power plan and put in place the uh, Trump administration plan, which you got close to its name. It's, uh, it's ACE, A-C-E, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which is a similar idea, but much more friendly to the power plant industries. It would only regulate um, uh, existing power plants. It would really still foster the building and creation of new coal-fired power plants that in 2021, in December, last days of the Trump administration almost, um, all right, yeah, actually, so earlier, um, it gets struck down by the DC circuit. So now we have neither the Clean Power Plan nor the Trump administration's ACE plan um, in place. Normally what would happen is if a plan got struck down by the DC circuit, as Trump's plan did, we would go back to the Obama plan. That's just kind of standard, you know, one rule gets, um, removed, you go back to whatever the previous rule was. So you think we would go back to that clean power plant rule that had been um, 
put on pause by the court while the court was waiting to see what the Trump administration would do, you think we would go back and bring it back to life. But the Biden administration has said they don't have any interest in doing so. They want to create their own plan. They don't want to go with the, with the Obama plan. So instead, we have no plan in place. Um, just yesterday, the director of the EPA, so April 6th now, 2022, the director of the EPA says, we plan to put out a new plan as a proposed plan as soon as the Supreme Court issues on its latest pending case, so supposedly this summer. So we'll get the Biden's new proposed plan this summer that will then take probably at least a year to go through the, the notice and comment rulemaking process. Will there likely to be a legal challenge to that? I think we're unlikely to actually see another plan in place for two years. <laughs> so what is the, the court uh, hearing? What is the West Virginia versus EPA and, and how could that go? Okay, so this is, so you can picture with this long journey that this case is actually coming at a weird spot because you're trying to figure out what exactly is this case looking at? Which regulation are we challenging? Because it seems like the Clean Power Plan isn't live and the Trump ACE plan isn't live. So what's the live case or controversy? That's a big part of the question. Let's just put a pin in that and just say, what are they looking at? They're looking at kind of the what are the types of rules that can be made to regulate stationary sources? Um, from greenhouse gas emissions. And the debate is actually kind of technical one under like section 111D of the Clean Air Act about whether or not the regulations can cover emissions that are just coming out of a smokestack or whether they can take a broader picture about what's going on at a whole facility or perhaps even across facilities. So the Obama Clean Power Plant, for example, wanted to take an industry-wide look at coal-fired plants to make rules kind of as an industry, as opposed to going facility by facility, smokestack by smokestack. And so the challenge is an important one for understanding the Clean Power Plan or just understanding the Clean Air Act and how it might operate. But at the same time, it has a lot of what we would call just disability issues, which is just what exactly is the live case or controversy before us? What is the interpret? Normally, we'd have here's the interpretation of the agency. Is it? Do we uphold it or not? But because we don't actually know what the Biden administration is about to do, it's a hard challenge from that standpoint. And there's uh, before the Supreme Court last month at the oral arguments, there was a lot of discussion of just. What are we challenging? Is it the clean power plan? Is it something else? Should we even be hearing this? So there's a chance that this case um, is just tossed for not being justiciable, for not being ripe yet, for not having the correct rule before it to pen to to decide on. Or they might decide that they're actually just examining the clean power plan, and then that might be a rule the, that they delve more into. The more interesting piece and where the justices really spent a lot of their time in the questioning here, though, was about something called the major questions doctrine. Major questions doctrine is something that hasn't been evoked very often. And I think that's why people are kind of really interested to see where the Supreme Court goes with it here. Um, it has been evoked, if at all, a lot in the um environmental context. So let me tell you what it is. What, what's the idea here is that sometimes there are questions that are so big that seem like such a departure from what the statute was about that 
we shouldn't really defer to an agency's interpretation. So we say, okay, what did Congress intend with this statute? And does the agency's implementation of that statute seem really far from what Congress intended? And in particular, do we think that this rule is going to give the agency too much power? Do we feel like they're taking on such a big sector of the economy that we would have expected Congress to speak really clearly that it intended it for for it to do so? So early cases about this, um, um, probably the most cited case is actually one about um, tobacco regulation and the FDA, right? So did Congress clearly tell FDA that it was supposed to regulate tobacco? And if not, FDA's decision to suddenly start regulating tobacco, a huge industry, without any indication from Congress that it intended to do so would be misplaced. So this is what happens a lot in the Clean Air Act. We actually have multiple Clean Air Act cases um, about greenhouse gases where the court is trying to grapple with, did Congress really intend for this statute to regulate climate change? Did it really intend for us to invoke the Clean Air Act to shut down fossil fuel generation? If it did so, Shouldn't Congress have said that? Isn't that a big enough thing that we would expect a real explicit statement from Congress that that is part of what this statute is doing? Okay. So other than kicking the can, um, what what are the ramifications for either road? You're saying if the Biden's if the Biden administration puts out a plan, it's two years. What's the fastest most direct road to get to where we need to go as a country? Is that Congress acting and going, this is what we mean and this is what needs to happen right now? Or, or kind of how do we get to where we should be, where we desperately need to be? Where we desperately need to be is a statute that's really about climate change, right? So we are wrapped up in a very complicated regulatory structure under the Clean Air Act and trying to make it do something that I think it's right. I think Congress probably had no idea in the 70s that this statute would be used to deal with climate change issues. It doesn't mean that it's beyond their goals, which were to kind of kind of stop the health impacts of things coming out of smokestacks. But if we really want to move quickly, we should have just a separate statute that is like, this is how we're tackling climate change. You could call it like the you know, Paris Agreement Implementation Act or the climate change law, the national climate change policy. And you would have in there a bunch of different things that would include fossil fuel plans, but it would also kind of include some of the other things we could do, like issues with agriculture and land use planning and, and you know, trade. There's a lot of big picture stuff that we could do, and we wouldn't have to deal with this continual debate about an older statute about trying to squeeze climate change into it. Um, while we're on that, what can we do? Um, I know you've said in the past that the one best thing an individual can do is vote to combat climate change. Um, but what do nations need to do now to slow the race to higher world temperatures and, and sea level rise? So I still stand by my statement that, that an individual's th um, most productive route here is voting. I think that's backed up by our latest reports that are coming from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, world experts coming together to assess the state of climate science and what's going on. Their latest report just issued um, a few days ago tells us this problem is really bad. 
but solutions are available. And what is largely stopping the implementation of those solutions is political issues. So that does tell us that there is a political journey here to be taken. So under the Paris Agreement, under the International Climate Change Accords, what countries need to do is make really serious commitments to cutting back on their carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. And as we say, we kind of know what we need to do, but it is a bit painful to do it. Uh, we also have underfunded climate change, which is that there is a kind of a world fund to help implement climate change, particular, um, mitigation strategies and adaptation strategies. And we have made commitments on paper, um, but never kind of followed up with writing the check, both the United States and some other countries. So I think diving in and actually doing those with pretty serious commitment is needed at this point. The sky is falling. Um, but we've been hearing it since uh, an inconvenient truth. And, you know, we're kind of blasé. I don't know. It's frustrating. Is, is there anything you'd like to add in closing about that? Well, we've been hearing it a lot longer before the inconvenient truth. You know, the inconvenient truth, which was in 20, 2006. And in 2007, we actually then had a Nobel Peace Prize given to the IPCC, to this intergovernmental panel, shared with Al Gore, but I think we should list them first. The uh, but the, you know the fact that they had gotten to that point to have the all of these reports already and to have this movie and the books and everything shows you that the scientists have been saying this for a lot longer, uh, and yet we have a lot of trouble kind of getting our act together and doing anything on it. And I. I'm not sure how we make that change. But I will say, if you look at the movement and you look at who's angry, the young people are angry. You know, it's being led by people like Greta Thunberg and other people, right, who are like, you guys are sitting here and you're just not willing to make the sacrifices. And I think they might be more willing to make the sacrifices. I think if we look at our own uh, politicians, they're old. Our president is old, <laughs> our governors, our, our, our congresspeople, they're staying in these positions a lot longer than people used to stay in these positions. We're not kind of handing off to the next generation. And I think as, as soon as we do, we will see some quicker movement. Mm -hmm. Well, that's encouraging. Thank you for that. <laughs> Um, well, thanks so much, Jessica, for joining us. It's always a, a pleasure having you on, and I always learn a lot. <laughs> I hope I didn't depress you too much. Oh, no, it's okay. Thank you. <laughs> See you around. Yeah. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's postgraduate programs, perched at the pivot point between the Americas and Europe and fueled by an influx of international ideas. Miami Law's eight postgraduate degree programs provide countless opportunities for the international and domestic lawyer to enhance their expertise. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu forward slash academics forward slash LLM. Thank you.